Well, I'm super excited to talk with Damon Volpe, the supervising sound editor, sound recording mixer, and sound designer for the recent film that just came out, The Lighthouse, which I had a chance to see at the Mill Valley Film Festival. Damien, thanks so much for uh, chatting with me, which you're in New York, you're in Brooklyn, right? Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, I work out of Brooklyn and in Manhattan at Harbor Sound. You have a, a really interesting roster of projects you worked on, to name a few. Um, Can You Forgive Me, Leave No Trace, St. Vincent, Mudbound, Drive, Winter's Bone, Margin Call. I mean, those are just like a few of them and, and like a, and a bunch of documentaries. For you, maybe just to give a little background on your own personal journey. Talk to me about some of the projects. Have you always been based out in the East Coast? Kind of, uh, how did you get to uh, this point? Yeah, I, I started uh, living in New York and uh, Brooklyn about 20 something years ago. And um, at the time I was just trying to make a living in the arts, bartending and actually writing, making some kind of films on Super 8, you know, using loops and then started actually as a picture editor before I got involved in my first sound project. And then once that happened, I got really excited by it and just never looked back. Um, so that's kind of how that happened, you know. Being out in the East Coast, there's like a really interesting collection of productions and directors and, and folks who are working, not, it's not outside of the Hollywood system, it's just it's a different creative you know, support structure and like in, in industry out there. For you, like, what, what do you appreciate about being an East Coast? Well, I, I've been, I've been just um, insanely fortunate in getting to collaborate with, you know, these directors, Rob Eggers, Mari Heller, Deborah Granick, Ira Sachs, and I have a 20 year relationship going back to his first feature film, which was called The Delta. And um, that's, that's, you know, I mean, obviously partly a lot of hard work and then also just uh, some luck of the draw, just getting these really great independent New York directors. And sometimes um, they, you know, focus on making low budget films and sometimes they go on to make things with a, you know, slightly a, a greater budget allows us some, you know, to put some more resources into it. And um, I enjoy both of those, but mostly it's really that one on one relationship and the kind of language that you develop with a director over time. Rob Eggers and I started working together on his first short film, uh, which is called The Telltale Heart. And then actually I did a short called Brothers, which informed the sound on The Witch, which I did not get to do because they did that in Canada. Um, so when we got a chance to work together again on The Lighthouse, it meant that we already had a shared language, you know, which is uh, really the root of his work, I think. When did Robert first reach out to you about this film? Uh, actually, I, I, I met Robert through uh, his amazing and brilliant uh, picture editor, Louise Ford. And mm -hmm. so um, this conversation about The Lighthouse had uh, been kind of in the background uh, for a while because it was a project that uh, developed you know, I think in inside his head and then one night when the three of us were out, he just kind of happened to mention that he was going to make a black and white film, you know, with this obscure old format uh, and that, you know, he, they were going to shoot on film and they wanted to do everything very analog and dirty. And would I be interested? And uh, that night on the subway home, I actually wrote a whole script, not realizing that he had already actually had a story like an idiot. I came up with my own black and white film. And then he's like, that sounds great. But actually, we do have a story. <laughs> and he asked me if I would record it, which I was interested to do. Um, but in the end, I decided not to because I didn't want to 
fuck it up. You know, I, if I usually get someone who's a, who knows what they're doing, it's going to be a very difficult, uh, you know, situation. And, and Xander, the sound recordist, uh, did a great job under super difficult circumstances. So, you know, we did end up having to replace a lot of the dialogue because of the, you know, extreme weather conditions that they faced. Uh, and also because of the difficulty of the language in general. Um, but, you know, I think in the hands of someone else, we would have had to do a lot more. Also, my lead mixer, I should shout out Rob Fernandez, uh, I've been wor working with steadily uh, since I did my first feature, actually, 23, 24 years ago, um, is a, a, you know, really uh, just like a lifesaver, basically, it enabled us to keep a lot of that production sound in the film. All, all that good texture that they were able to get on set. Yes, yeah, so, uh, I love the synopsis. It, it just, um, they say, this hypnotic and hallucinatory tale of two lighthouse keepers on a remote and mysterious New England island in the 1890s. I mean, like, when the film starts, you have no idea. Like, I think there were a lot of people at the film festival that kind of walked in, just like, oh, it's Robert Pattinson and William Defoe, and, like, that was it. Like, little did they know that they were going to be subjected to this, like, amazing story a tale of two two lighthouse keepers so when you first read uh, maybe the script or started to see picture and obviously like you, you guys had talked about this early on before maybe he had started shooting but where does robert think where does his ears go where like what direction like what were the kind of like the north stars for you guys of defining like a sonic theme for this uh they really started with the telltale heart um so they, you know, there, there's a there's a shared um, sim, symbological language there that comes, you know, from literature and from uh, from things that we have in common uh, interest in, you know, in Poe and Melville, certainly in H.P. Lovecraft. We're both Yankees from New England and and, you know, the horror uh, and the kind of love of language and occult and the those you know kind of the fabulistic parts of it but robert is nothing if not um how do i say this exacting uh demanding and extremely specific you know i think that comes from his his you know the research background so so everything is you know he, he he's very clear about what he wants but he's also extremely open to um chance and to the unexpected and to things that maybe he didn't imagine in it um and you know that's a big part of the score of course mark corbin's score which i think is uh, really you know again like just did an amazing job um has an aleatoric aspect to it so you know some of the scores the direction for the musicians is 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 left to chance you really don't know what you're going to get um there's an ex there's an experimental nature there so we wanted to sound of course to be um to help with the the horror aspect of the film some some of the comedic aspect of it it's a pretty limited range of instruments that you're working with in a sense you're on you're stuck on this island and it's kind of claustrophobic and so the the sounds repeat um the waves and the wind, the seagulls, you know, there's not that many elements at the end of the day, the foghorn. Um, they, so I, I, I just needed those sounds to kind of play a lot of different roles at different times. Um, interestingly, Rob said in, uh, to, uh, and I'm sorry if I'm going on and on, but do remember now that, that you asked this right in the beginning, he said, I'm so sorry, but 
I'm, I'm going to make you use a heartbeat again, you know? And uh, he said it with this big eye roll and um, because we had had obviously the telltale heart and then there was a heartbeat in brothers and he wanted to, to have a heartbeat of some kind in the scene with the mermaid. Um, and I thought, uh, well, you know, he's reacting to, why did he say that that way? Well, he's reacting to the cliched nature of the heartbeat. And I said, well, fuck it. If there's going to be a heartbeat, then everything is going to have a heartbeat. Um, starting with the waves have kind of like a double, double tap, you know, and then the clockwork mechanisms for the Fresnel lands. And if they're going to have a heartbeat, they might as well have, I have lungs. And so everything just wanted everything on the Island to be kind of breathing and alive. Um, and that, I think that actually was the beginning of my thinking about this story. Once, um, I had read the script and met with Rob, that, 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 that actually was the first conversation we had about the sound. The beginning of the film, when I first heard the foghorn, I, lo I love what you guys did because it, I think it made people question, like, is that for real? Is it distorted? Like, it's a really interesting kind of approach because you guys were starting it off the first few minutes or however, there's no talking, it's just sound. Maybe there's a music cue that carries it in, but like, it sets the stage for the surreal of like, what perspective are we taking? Are we an audience? Are we taking perspective of someone else? Like, can you talk about crafting the beginning of the film? Because it it's incredible how sonically, like, it just sets the stage for, like, this is going to be how this movie kind of treats uh, the sonic landscape. Yeah, I have, I mean, I remember seeing the first, um, the beginning, when the first time I saw the, 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 the rough edit in the beginning of the film, um, there was a moment of, of panic <laughs> when I, you know, he said, we're not going to have any score here and i looked at this image of this gray square and i started to watch what you know jaron blasky the the dp and and craig lathrop the sin you know the art director had had come up with and i thought um you know i have to try and bring the sound up to the level of these 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 artists um you know Lou Ford the picture editor and these and the actors and the writing and I, there was definitely a moment there where despite the um having done this for a really long time I thought well th this is a lot to bite off on a very small budget um you know keep in mind I have a very small crew it's basically William Sweeney the dialogue editor and uh Philippe Messeter who who did all the fully amazing Foley work and helped me with a lot of recording and some of the sound design and um, with the with with a, just a little bit of help from a couple other people, basically it was the three of us who who had to bring all this together. And so the beginning, I just needed, I wanted it to be um, 
like a score. I wanted from the beginning for the score and the sound design to be inseparable and confused. Um, and so the foghorn presented obviously the first note of that, you know, um, I did a lot of research into steam foghorns, probably far too much. And, uh, and I actually found a, a, a horn in Scotland and a guy who had made a short film about it uh, named J.J. Jameson. And it's a great little short film. Actually, I highly recommend checking it out. And, um, and, I, and I contacted him and I was actually able to get a hold of the lighthouse keeper there. Um, it's a steam-powered diaphone, which is the first basically steam foghorn that ever existed. Actually, it was invented in Canada. Um, and uh, and so that's the kind of base note of that foghorn. But it didn't have the attack that we wanted. Um, and we had found a, 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 another lighthouse uh, with a with a that doesn't function anymore. But there's a, a different kind of steam-powered foghorn called a siren, which has a more of a mid-range note that had a much more aggressive attack to it it's something that i think um the the the, the picture editor found originally and was like okay that's going to be like somewhere in the middle of those two sounds so you know we wanted it to be a, a mysterious sound obviously um also something that would drive you crazy you know as the film went on i mean you can tell from the first scene with with uh with you know young uh Bob Pattinson's character that, you know, as he gets closer, suddenly this sound, which maybe is a little bit mysterious now, all of a sudden is like just aggressive and, and like, you know, it's going to become relentless and kind of hopefully drive you a little bit insane as the characters also go through that, you know, ordeal. You can imagine what it was like living on one of those islands with a, a foghorn going off every 10 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever. I mean, I, I, I I, you know, that life, the exposed to the elements and the sea and the wind and that sound and the coal. I mean, just how rough that must have been and how rough it is actually for, I think, a lot of lighthouse keepers still, you know. So my understanding was that it was shot in natural elements. Like when it was raining, it was raining. Is that true? Yeah, they 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 um, the, the interior is not 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 so much. I mean, obviously, they, they although sometimes I think it was raining when you see it raining outside. Um, but, you know, with the water pouring through and whatnot, obviously that's a, on a set, but all the exteriors, um, they, they just shot whatever they had. So some of the scenes where the rain is really lashing them there, that's the real deal. The shot where they're standing on the cliff, where the wind just looks like it's blowing a hundred knots. That's, that's the real wind. Yeah. And that was, uh, I wish I had been there for that. <laughs> it, well, it seems to me like it sets a precedent for being authentic to like the character of the the island the lighthouse like there's incredible tonal expressions that you put throughout I'd love for you to just kind of describe how you treated your winds and what was happening in the score and what you did on the sound design there's wonderful moments where you don't know like i said what's real what's not real so how, how did you work with your composer how did you work with robert like what was the dance like for the three of you um, yeah, Rob was very, you know, adamant from the beginning that the, you know, because I just had, I think having shot it on Cape Fortune, you know, and experienced what that wind was like, the kind of relentless nature of the wind, he just, from the beginning, he's like, you have to just, you have to just bring it full force. You know, you have, we want them to feel exposed when they're inside, but we still want to have some dynamics between, you know, the kind of 
raging winds of the exterior and you know it, it to feel at least that like you can go inside and get away from it a little bit um and i think it's just my natural instincts to work with the soundscape as if it's music so um you know with with mark was completely open to that you know i and my first conversation with mark i was definitely treading lightly you never know with a composer you know i want to be respectful um and and uh and and he was just like yeah let's let's do it whatever you got an idea let's let's do it you know and i mean there was just a great feeling of being on a like a, a ship filled with really talented misfits on this film and you know definitely mark and and uh and and just like the whole crew of them um open to experimentation in a way that you don't find that often in film so with the winds you know i i recorded a lot of stuff um I, I like to work with drones i know that rob likes that he talks a lot about you know kind of scandinavian um filmmakers and they're you know the, the, they, they use a lot of um i think nat sound that they turn into drones and has a kind of an interesting gritty analog flavor and that's something that we had explored together on brothers uh the short film that cut kind of informed the witch a little bit. And so I've made a bunch of sounds. Um, actually the interior of the lighthouse, for some reason it just reminded me of like the inside of a, a conch a shell. And so I just stuck a mic inside a, a shell, a big shell and kind of recorded that hollow sound. Um, so that's the interior wind for the lighthouse. It had a nice low end resonance, gave a little you know, feeling of something mysterious there. And then there are um, these days, I think, just a lot of great recordists working uh, around the world, you know, recording stuff in 5.1. And so the, 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 you know, for a sound designer, it's a it's a really a luxury to to be able to tap into some of that. I mean, guys uh, in the Midwest, you know, going out in the middle of thunderstorms with their their, you know, their rigs to record like winds howling over the plane. And, you know, that's just like a treasure trove for someone like me. So did you um, do any other additional record trips now, like special water recordings or special considerations of seagulls getting to kill? Like what, 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 what did you go out and, and like, what was on your list of things that you, you needed? Th th this film, I actually recorded a more, a greater percentage of sound, I think than I've, than I've ever recorded for any other film. Um, partially because I know that Eggers has a, have a, a he's very sensitive to anything that doesn't seem real, uh, even though a lot of it is, is, you know, there's unreal, obviously unreal qualities to it. Um, but you know, his attention to period specificity, to historical accuracy, to the props, to, you know, and this is a guy who built a lighthouse on a rock in Cape Fortu and who built that cabin in the middle of the woods in new england with period tools you know i just know that that's what what he wants um and so we recorded um uh, all sorts of things i recorded steam engines um in connecticut at, at uh, in mystic uh, there's a seaport there you know museum and there's a, a sound in um uh, northwest connecticut there's this kind of uh, steam museum run by a bunch of retired engineers pretty awesome and um, I, they were very generous in letting me to go record some things there. 
And uh, we made the sounds for The Mermaid. And I, my wife talked me into a lighthouse on Cape Cod. So I did footsteps there. Um, we dug a grave. <laughs> uh, uh, my wife, who's uncredited, but really should have had a, a fully credit, uh, also uh, sourced a, a, a antique lobster pot for me so I could smash that on the rocks. Rob was um, unhappy with a foley that we had created for that. And uh, we tried a bunch of times and it wasn't to his liking. So we ended up just buying an old lobster pot and going down to the, the rocks and just uh, dragging it around and kind of breaking it up. Seagulls. Um, I recorded waves on Block Island. What else did we record? I have a kind of a creaky old apartment in Brooklyn. And so the floorboards make an appearance in the film and um, all sorts of things. Yeah, we really went to town on it. I think, you know, I would say a, a good 50% of the sound in the film, either I or Philippe and I recorded ourselves, you know, including the drones and things like that, that we kind of created from uh putting our microphone in strange places. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, the, the, the visually the film, it's black and white. It's a four, three aspect ratio and it doesn't change. It's, it's, it really, it's, it's interesting. I'm, I haven't seen a four, three film in a long time. So like seeing that aspect ratio, it doesn't, it feels a little more confining claustrophobic, but they're also shooting with like interesting lenses. So like the perspective is, is somewhat still intimate and close, which I think is just an aspect of shooting the film. So when you thought about, you know, your theater space of the playback for at least uh, your surround mix. How did you guys take it? How, how did you play into the narrowness of, of the four, three of just the picture? And then how do you open it up? Like what, what were the dynamics that you, you played with? Yeah. I, I think the aspect is actually almost closer to a square, right? Yeah. It's a full square probably. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a really, uh, you know, haven't seen it. It's not even four, three, it's not 16 millimeter. I think it was in, um, uh, I forget exactly the number, but it's a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very confined claustrophobic vertical, you know, space. And I, when I first saw it, I thought we have to do this in mono. And then I think with the very quickly experimenting, I realized that you could uh, widen the, sound perspective as much as you wanted and somehow psychologically it still felt attached to the center channel so it was really interesting um the you know what happened when we were still wrestling with that question or when i was still experimenting with how to approach the sound i got the first piece of score from mark and it was so beautiful and full frequency and wide that I was like, okay, we're, we're, we're going completely in the other direction. So rather than keep it very narrow and try to fit everything inside that one center channel, the score really led the way with that. You know, it, it was, it's, it was so tremendous that first score it was so exciting to me that I realized we could just go completely embrace the surrounds and every frequency range and use the sub. And it was like, okay, it was actually interesting. In some ways it was a more interesting choice. I think Rob Eggers, you know, felt that it was in some ways maybe a more interesting choice that it was not just a pastiche, uh, an old film that, you know, we were trying to recreate. We wanted it to have that feeling like you had stumbled on an old film. And um, we did end up processing the whole soundtrack through 
an analog uh, chain at the end of the mix, which gave it a kind of another, like we weren't quite sure what we would get. I mean, we played around with it so that we had a feeling that we liked, but- um, What was the combination of things that you gave it? You know, most of the stuff that I recorded, of course, um, you know, what had a kind of gritty realism to it. And the dialogue was, you know, as I said, about 50% of the dialogue anyways was from the actual set. But in the end, we really wanted it to have a little bit more grain. And um, so we ended up using um, a tape emulator that actually has magnetic head. And we, we stacked three of those. They're stereo. Uh, we stacked three of them on top of each other and ran the 5-1 mix through that. And it gave it some saturation and kind of a little bit of distortion on the on the uh, high end and some granularity that I thought was pretty interesting. But it was, you know, it was a it was an experiment. I mean, in the end, that's a, that's after a lot of careful sound design. We basically were like, OK, let's do this and see what we get. So that was the process with uh, with with Eggers. It was really um, pretty wonderful to have a director who really strongly knows what they want, but is also just open to um, chance. Hmm. Yeah. And w was the film shot uh, linearly? I think so. And, you know, I, I don't know, but I'm I'm sure that I'm sure not, given that they were working with a, a, a you know a pretty constrained budget. I'm sure they 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 got it you know, location by location and, you know, as the day allowed. So I, I know it was a very difficult, very, very difficult shoot. Um, when did it come back to you? And like, how early did you start seeing picture or cut? Does Rob like to react uh, even when he's in production or did, it, did he wrap out his production when he started seeing picture and, and getting, you know, feedback loops going? Well, I think with Rob, I, I saw some of the first scenes that they shot. I mean, I think he was you know, partially because the conversation had started years beforehand and, you know, about a year beforehand. And, and so we, you know, we'd already been kind of arguing it out, uh, talking it out. How are we going to approach this? And, you know, he wanted to me to see where his brain was and what, you know, what, what they were kind of put as you. And also I think he was just trying to get me excited. Um, it was an ordeal. Uh, you know, I don't think it was as much of an ordeal as it was for the actors, you know, walking into the Nova Scotia waters or like, you know, out in the rainstorms and the, and the wind. But, you know, for sure, the, the process was a difficult one. I mean, I would say by far the most difficult sound job I've ever done. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. It, it, it always seems like the ones that, you know, nearly break you are the ones that you look back and you're like, wow, I can't believe what I accomplished. It, it's like a it's a love hate relationship, I imagine. Yeah, I, I knew that I was what I was getting into having worked with Rob before, but um, it even still was a, was a little shocking. But it was so exciting for me, you know, to be able to to make something like that with a with a with a, you know, these artists on every level. And it was just a very exciting pro process. So I, I knew that going into it, that it was going to kind of eat my life for an extended period of time. Uh, but I would do it again in a heartbeat. And I hope to, obviously. Yeah. So you guys had your premiere at con is that right you said yeah so working towards how much time did you have between when production wrapped and your first premiere mm, oh very little actually um uh, when production wrapped or when we when we finished. or when you yeah when you started obviously getting into post um well we let's see i think i worked on the film for uh which was for me a, 
pretty extensive period of time because we had such a small crew. Um, I think it was about four months. And, um, and there was a big break in the middle where uh, the picture edit opened up. And I just kept working through that break um, kind of on my own volition because I was so uh, my head was so wrapped up in it. Um, it was really, uh, you know, I really, I was really deep into this one and, and thinking about it a lot. I think even when I was sleeping, you know, I was kind of dreaming in black and white and, um, <laughs> it was a little manic, um, but really exciting. And when we wrapped, I actually designed a, a shirt for the film because I think I was still, my brain was still, you know, working on it, even though we had finished. <laughs> and then I just got on a plane and went and, and tried to make sure it sounded good at, at the uh, premiere, which was pretty exciting. So for you, like in terms of having that intimate relationship with a project like this, I imagine there's a lot of exploration potentially of, of your own kind of opportunities to not have to feel like, I mean, with four months, it's a fair amount of time, but it's also, you have a deadline looming. So what do you enjoy about just having an intimate kind of relationship and also having your hands in a lot of, of the, the creative decisions that are being made since Army of One or obviously a small crew? Well, yeah, I mean, it's definitely not an arm, Army of One. Um, an army of, you know, like four, um, it, at half of that time I was working on my own. Um, but as I said, it was, you know, really just the, the, the dialogue, uh, supervisor, William Sweeney and, and, um, Philippe Messeter, my kind of partner in crime on the Foley side for about two months, you know, I think seven or eight weeks of, of actual editorial and then myself for working on myself on my own for a couple months. Um, and then um, a woman named Angela who did a little ADR work for us. And I think I had, uh, you know, a, a little bit of help on the effects side from some friends, but a, a very tiny crew and um, and not a, you know, not a lot of resources to pull that off. So I think it was just one of those decisions, you know, where you get into it in the beginning and you're like, OK, this is you're going to do this for the love, you know, or for the art. Um and and uh, and that's exciting for me. I mean, otherwise, why why do it? You know, some of the really amazing, beautiful sonic moments are when they go into these kind of hallucinations of Robert's character Ephraim. Can you talk to me a little about crafting those and how you guys established the transitions? Are really visually interesting. Like you don't really, it's not obvious that he's hallucinating or he's having these visions or moments. So. It's it's just it's a really interesting kind of approach to treating something that I think normally would be like much more abstract. I mean, the whole film is <laughs> pretty abstract <laughs> in moments. So can you talk to me a little about how you how you guys wanted to approach, like especially with the mermaid scenes and some of those other kind of I don't I still don't know if some of those scenes were real or if, was, if we're in Robert's head. Well, that that was the intent. So I'm glad that that worked. I, I think that was the that was the for me anyways the the goal and the from the beginning was for it for you not to know if it's like a dream or a nightmare or if it's real for it to be grounded in quotidian details, but also somehow, you know, a, like a, a horrible inescapable uh, dream. And even with the mermaid, you know, I think, is it a dream? I don't know. I still don't know. I worked on the thing. I looked at every frame of that film for, months and months and months i watched it a million times you have to ask rob or maybe max uh you know um i i think you know i i i just wanted it 
that kind of uh, the dialogue, which is so amazing. You know, those guys did an incredible job writing that that thing. They really did. And then the score and and the sound design to just be. Um, I'm not sure how to spit it out. You know, I I I, I think it's important that they that you leave not knowing, I guess that's what I mean to say. And the sound could kind of blur that, you know, I think that's something that sound can do very well, which is to blur that boundary between what seems real and what seems uh, like a dream. I, I find that whenever there's a film that takes place on the water, it becomes a question of how much water and how much lapping and how like how do we get variation and, and this whole film takes place on like you're surrounded by water you're surrounded by seagulls and like you guys do a really good job of crafting spaces um can you talk about just how you build variety in your material when it comes to everything outside of dialogue because i feel like knowing that you've had to build this world is it long recordings? Like, how does you orchestrate it so that it doesn't sound like it's a loop, that we're not just revisiting the same tonal space? Because every time you go outside, it's like, I don't know what I'm going to get because it just feels like there's so much interesting energy that you guys are putting into the soundtrack. Yeah, I mean, with Waves, it's, um, I mean, it's a pulse. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, right, that, 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 that rhythm, um, frequency, uh, or interval, I guess is the actual, you know, appropriate word. And so I think it just goes from there. It's, you know, it's a driving force and it plays into the heartbeat theme, um, and also into the clocks, you know, that time passing. And so those, those elements, the kind of the, 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 the double beat of bass of the heart, you know, of the clock mechanism of the waves, Dum, dum, you know, hitting the shore and of the clocks ticking away, like kind of just drive the whole film. And then from there, it's just about perspective and, and tempo um, and frequency, you know, all those things that sound, sound designers use to, you know, tell a story um, to let, to give the film. I think in this film, it was important to have, as you said, variation, because the elements were pretty limited in the end, but also to feel the repetitiveness of the life there, you know, the nonstop nature of the wind and the repetitive chores that he has to do. And he has to, you know, fill that wheelbarrow up with coal and drag it up the hill, and you know, stoke the engine and the engine is driving and the clocks are ticking and the days are going by and there's no relief in sight. And so I, you know, the, 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 those, the waves really helped in that sense to kind of, for it to feel the repetitive and also nature of it, but also, yeah, you know, that's gracious of you to say, you know, that we were able to kind of give it enough variety that kind of keep you not knowing what was coming. Now that the film has been out and audiences are having chances to see it, what's your takeaway from a project like this now that you've had a little distance from it? Obviously, I know you'd probably do it again, but like, what were some of the takeaways that, that you learned from this project? Yeah, I can't wait to um, get back at it with with Rob. Um, this, this, I feel like this this was this job definitely opened up some ideas for me that I'm interested to explore. I think things that I've been doing maybe unthinkingly. 
um, with sound and a progression, you know, over the years that, that uh, Rob really, uh, pushes you, you know, as an artist, uh, very far. I mean, he's, he's quite unrelenting and that's great in a director. Um, you know, it's, it, it, he really, he never stops. And the, 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 the act of, of creation really was right up to the last second. He's probably still, well, hopefully he's not thinking about it. Hopefully he's thinking about the next thing, but, um, but, you know, I'm sure part of his brain is still working on it. He's, it's pretty exciting. And, and, and I, I feed off that and I work that way too. So, you know, that, that was not something that I look forward to doing again with him, you know? Um, but then in terms of the sound, you know, I, I, I don't know. I was watching, um, well, I watched Ida again the other night and Cold War, you know, and, and, and those films are both shot in that kind of black and white small square. And the sound work on those is just mind boggling. It's so exquisite. And um, and I watched a movie like that and I realized that I still have so much to learn. And uh, and so it just never stops. You know, my brain is whirl whirling away and I'm ready to kind of get back into it and take some of the things that I learned from The Lighthouse, but also, you know, now having watched, just watched like a, a week ago, a Cold War, I thought, oh God, I don't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Damien, thank you so much for, for chatting about this beautiful film, The Lighthouse. I feel it's a wonderful film that I think should be experienced in the theater because uh, it's so unnerving to be, you know, to be in that space and to go through the story and follow the characters and it doesn't stop like it just keeps pushing in a really artful tasteful interesting way so congratulations and i, I hope more people have a chance to check it out because it's a beautiful film thanks that means a lot <laughs>